I just want to be happy. You ever heard that before? You ever said that before? Probably. I just want to be happy. I think you tend to hear that from, from two different people or in two different kinds of situations. The first is, is somebody who is in despair, discouraged, depressed. They've been in that season for a long time. They cannot figure out how to break out of it. And they say to somebody in desperation, I just want to be happy. And the other is somebody who's trying to make a decision in life. And they're running that decision through all kinds of filters, all kinds of grids to help them make those decision pros and cons lists. And what it boils down to ultimately, they tell you, is I just want to be happy. Maybe they're thinking about ending a relationship, a toxic relationship, where they say, I just want to be happy. Or a young person trying to pick their job or career, or maybe later in life, making a big career change. And you say to the person you love more than anybody else, listen, I just want to be happy. That's what, I want to do something that makes me happy. Um, or maybe more tragically, and I know there are some in this room who struggle with that. It's the mom or dad who looks forward all day to getting home from work so they can start drinking and numb what's hurting because they just want to be happy. We're actually living, those who study this, we're actually living in a time that has been called a crisis of despair. A crisis of despair. That there are 29%, right now, 29% of Americans who are diagnosed with some form of depression. And depression's real. In fact, what that means is nearly a third of Americans are dealing with sadness and sorrow daily, including those in this room. And hey, if that's you, it is serious and we would love to help. Okay, we'd love to help. Um, but what's sad and maybe most tragic about that number is that that number is up 10% since 2015. Just in the last years, last eight years, the number of those who are in despair chronically has climbed 10%. It's a crisis of despair. I, I know a family that I love dearly whose son just lost interest in all things that he loved. Dropped out of all the things he was pursuing, quit his job. And what they said to me, just heartbroken is, we just want him to be what? Happy. We just want him to be happy, right? Think about happiness, and you know this, and I know this, is that it comes and goes, doesn't it? Happiness is ruthlessly circumstantial. Let me give you an example. I come home from work. My lovely wife has made this wonderful dinner. The kids are there. They've already got their homework done. They're just happy to see me smiling, no tears, right? I come in the door. There they are at dinner. We sit down. I'm filled with joy and happiness eating this great dinner. We finish dinner. The kids run off, and I'm looking at a mountain of dishes, they have to be washed, and immediately I'm what? Unhappy. You see that? Like happiness to unhappiness, just like that. Happiness is ruthlessly circumstantial. So when we say, I just want to be happy, or I just want him or her to be happy, what we actually mean is, I wish they had something more than happiness. I wish they had a way to feel good all the time. A happiness that wasn't circumstantial, that's actually what we're wishing for and we have a different word for that. We call it what? Joy. Joy is a bit hard to define. 
For our purposes this morning, I'm going to say it's a happiness that my circumstances cannot take. It may be easier to look at joy, what joy looks like. So come with me to Acts chapter 16. We've been working through the book of Acts. Let me, let me take you to one of my favorite stories in the Bible. There is so much in this story I would love to consider with you this morning. I'm going to focus on one thing. <clears throat> this is a story of when Paul and Silas are arrested. They're arrested under sham charges. They end up in a prison cell and they're actually beaten, flogged, and chained and shackled in this prison cell, probably below ground. You might envision kind of a dungeon situation. There's other prisoners there. They're chained up in that prison and they are singing. Beaten, flogged, stripped, chained up, singing praises to God. Look at this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. And you wonder, what were those prisoners thinking? I bet they're thinking one of two things. One, they're looking at those guys and they're thinking to themselves, those guys are crazy. And they're probably at the same moment thinking to themselves, I wish I had a little bit of that crazy. And isn't that our response when we see joy? Like, what is it you have that's filling you with joy in this moment? And, oh, I would like a bit of it. <laughs> I would like some of that joy and enduring happiness that my circumstances couldn't take. I guess what I want to point out to you this morning is what I want us as the people of God to do and what I want us to do really well is to pay attention to what people say. Not so that we can criticize what people say, but so that we can hear and understand what people most long for. And you hear it in what they say. I just want to be happy. And the reason we hear that so much is because it is one of the deepest human longings there is. Happiness. And so I'll tell you, and I told this to two young men I was studying with this week. I told them, listen, the reason that I believe in Jesus is uh, not just because of the scientific evidence, although I think there's great scientific evidence for the resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ, not just for the historical evidence of the death and resurrection of Christ. The main reason I believe in Jesus as the Christ, the King over all things, is because what he offers fulfills my deepest longings in ways nothing else does. That's it. That's the good news of Jesus. So let me just remind you of this. Look at, remember, Luke and Acts are one book. It's one story. So you go back to the very chapter one of the book. Look at this. This is Luke 2 about Jesus. I bring you good news that will cause great what? Joy for all the people. And then you come to the very end of Luke, the very end of the Jesus story after he ascends on high. Look at this about the disciples. <clears throat> they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. You see that at the beginning and the end of the story? Great joy, great joy. Luke has been called the gospel of joy. That's what it's about. Jesus giving what nobody else does, joy. And then you come into Acts and I'm paying attention to this because I care deeply that we would be vehicles of joy in the world and that the world around us would be moved and have these longings fulfilled through Christ Jesus. Look at this. This is Acts 8. Philip goes to this town, Samaria, preaches the good news of Jesus. And look at this. There was great joy in the city. 
Like this joy is contagious. This Jesus joy just spreads throughout the whole city. I want that for Memphis. I want this whole city to be a place that's filled with joy. But as much as I care about Memphis, I also care about me. I want to be filled with joy. Look at this, Acts 13. The disciples were filled with two things, joy and the Holy Spirit. So if it's true we live in a crisis of despair, then the people of God must, must know how God gives what the world doesn't. Joy. All right, come back with me to Acts chapter 16. How does God do it? Well, look, look at this story. What I want you to see here in Acts 16 is that joy has a partner. They walk hand in hand together. And so we're going to meet Joy in this story. We're also going to meet Joy's partner here. But first, I want, I want to set the stage for Joy's arrival on the scene. And the arrival, the context, sorry, which Joy arrives into is another crisis of despair. God shows up dramatically in this prison in the middle of the night. All the chains fall off Paul and Silas and all the prisoners. The prison doors swing wide open. The jailer runs in and he thinks he has failed at his job. Everybody has fled. Look at this. Look what happens. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, hey. We're all still here. Look at that. In a moment, he is ready to end his life. In a moment. Because, it would seem, he has built his worth, his meaning, and his purpose on what? His job. And he fails at his job. Dramatic, colossal failure at his job. And he's ready to end his life like that. Did any of you play the game Jenga growing up? Remember Jenga? Where you stack the wooden blocks onto this tower and you pull out one block at a time and hope that it doesn't come falling down. What makes the game tense? It's that at any moment you pull out one block and it's going to come falling down. And that's the jailer. One failure. And he's ready to kill himself. One failure crisis of despair. Now, he's got good reason to be afraid. You may remember back in 12, Herod kills prison guards who let their prisoners get out free. So he's got good reason to be scared, but he is despairing and afraid just like that. So he comes to Paul and Silas who have stayed in the prison so that he's not killed. We think that's why they stay there. So he comes to them trembling and afraid, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now, we have just met Joy's partner here in this question. I love this question. This is the question that at some level, every single person you know and you and I must ask ourselves, what must I do to be saved? Okay. Now, I think he means one thing, and Paul and Silas hear something else. Let me give you an image to explain this. Let's imagine you were adrift in the ocean, okay? And uh, your, ship, your ship has sunk, you're all alone, struggling to stay afloat, treading water, and uh, you see a sailor coming your way. And he's got a little boat, and he's coming, coming to your rescue. And you call out to him, and you say, help me, help me. And he pulls up beside you, and he says, well, this is going to be hard, but I'll help you. 
you should really invest in a 401k. <laughs> and um, you should start working out more. You should get your yearly physical. You should lay off the desserts. You should probably lay off the desserts. Shouldn't do so many of those. You should get out of debt, probably go to college. That may help. And he looks at you and you're still struggling there. You're sinking underwater. And he's like, oh, you just want me to pull you out of the water? Oh, you know, I can do that. I think what the jailer means is help save my life. He wants life sparing salvation. Help my life be spared. And what Paul and Silas hear is, oh, you want life changing salvation. You want your life to be of a totally different substance and kind. We're going to give you something more than what you're asking for. He asked, what must I do to be saved? And they say, all right, sit down. Let us tell you. Here's how it works. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and he washed their wounds. And immediately he and all of his household were baptized. Look at that. He washes them and they wash him. You see that? Pretty cool. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And look at this. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. Quick word of clarification. We're going to jump back in there on joy. I want you to circle that in your Bible. But he asked, what must I do to be saved? And that's a question that's asked a number of times in Acts. And maybe you're our guest today and, and you're wondering that very question. What must I do to be saved? Well, in Acts, there's kind of a constellation of answers, three words given, and all those words are connected to each other. It's kind of like if you look up in the sky and you see one of the stars in the Big, in the big Dipper. I don't know what those stars are named. Somebody can tell me. But you see one of them, you know that even if the others are covered up by clouds, they're there. And, and the three terms that are attached together in this holy constellation in Acts are three things. What must I do to be saved? Repent believe, and be baptized. Now, the three of them really go together. You may remember at the beginning of this series, I showed you this graph, and I'll throw it back up here on the screen, that turning to the Lord from yourself is, a, is two 90-degree turns. It's repentance, denying myself, and believing or trusting in the Lord. Or a world where I move from myself as king to God as king is two 90-degree turns, and those two turns take place under the umbrella of baptism. That's what's happening when someone's baptized. All right, so just a reminder that's going on in this story. But do you notice how his life changes? Let me just pause here. This guy, in a matter of moments, has gone from prepared to end his life in despair to filled with joy in a moment. What's the difference? Salvation. What must I do to be what? Saved. What's the difference? Salvation. What does salvation mean? What does it mean to you? When you hear the word salvation, how would you define it? I asked that in the chapel and somebody said, saved. I was like, yeah, but you may remember if you're defining a word, you can't use that word in its definition. It's, you know, you may remember that. Okay. What does salvation mean? Well, I asked two young men I was studying with this week. I said, what do you think of when you hear the word salvation? And they said, heaven. I think of heaven when I hear the word salvation. And maybe you do too. And I will never diminish heaven from this pulpit. I think the more we dwell on and think about heaven, the better our life on earth will be. I'm fully convinced of that. 
I also think the salvation we enjoy in heaven, though, the promise of the good news of Jesus Christ is that is something you can enjoy right now. And so what you really got to ask is, what is salvation according to the Bible? And I think if you look at the big picture of the Bible, salvation tends to mean four things. Another constellation of four things that are attached to each other. Salvation tends to mean four things. The first, I belong to the people of God now. You see this in Acts again and again when the Gentiles are brought into the community of God. How? They're saved. They have their people now. Two, it means I'm rescued from my enemies, whether those enemies are earthly enemies, like the jailer is afraid that somebody like Herod is going to come and kill him for his failure, or, and more often, spiritual enemies, like Paul talks about in Ephesians. I'm delivered from those enemies. Three, it means I'm forgiven of sins. That I stand before God, not as an ugly sinner, but as a justified son or daughter of the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ, that he looks on my sins and he says, they're forgiven. And then fourthly, it means that you've been given the Spirit. We talked about this last week. The promise of number four is you can actually have a conversational relationship with the God and Father, creator of the universe, because you have His Spirit living inside you. So to say you are saved or you are experiencing salvation is to say you are experiencing those four things. Let me simplify them. Look at it a little bit simpler. To say you are saved is to say to someone you belong Let's go to the next one. You belong, you are safe, you are forgiven, and you are not alone. Okay, we talked about human longings earlier. Are these not the four deepest human longings? That I would at every moment feel and know I belong, I am safe, forgiven, and not alone. We see these in our boys when they're little. And maybe you'll remember when your kids are growing up, you see those deepest longings expressed as fears when they're little. Uh, I think about every summer, right before school starts, there's a week of panic as they worry about what teacher they're going to have at school, not because the, the teacher matters to them, because they want their buddies to have the same teacher, right? They want to know their people are in their class, that they belong, right? Or that they're safe. We have a story in our family of, <clears throat> I, was, I was gone at work, Lindsay had to jump in the shower to get ready for something, and one of our boys, even though she told all three boys, sent him down, Ham hey, jumped in the shower, one of our boys forgot and panicked and walked out the door, unlocked the door himself, walked out into our cove in his underwear, shouting for his mom, because he didn't feel what? Safe. Or we have one of our sons, we got three sons. One of our sons will put himself in timeout. He feels so much guilt. <laughs> he wants to know he's forgiven. Our other sons, not that way. <laughs> and that he's not alone. My youngest deacon will come home at, or come down the stairs at night after we put him to bed if I did not pray to God that he would have only good dreams. He will come down and ask me to pray for him. Why? He doesn't want to go to bed thinking he's alone up there. If you'll throw those four back on the screen again, are these not the deepest human longings? And you see them in children, and the thing is, they don't go anywhere. They just morph and change. 
These are the things we want every single day of our life. And the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ is you have these things. And because of that, if your deepest longings are met and it cannot be taken from you, you can have real joy. Real joy. Now, why are some Christians so cranky? You know what I mean? Does anybody else have an Uncle Grumpy? Yeah, yeah. There's some stories there I won't tell you. Why so cranky? I asked Carter, our preaching intern, uh, when he was still here, he went back to school this last week, and we were talking about this sermon a few weeks ago, thinking about joy, and he said, I was asking him about joy, I said, uh, you're a joyful dude, how, how are you joyful? He said, I choose joy, I choose joy. And I love that, and I think there's, there's truth in that. I say, how do you choose joy? And he says, well, you know, I just think about all the things I'm grateful for. I count my blessings, I name them one by one. Oh, man. We need to start singing that song some more. All right. He says, I count my blessings. I name them one by one. And he started listing his blessings, his work, his family, his friends, and all those things. And I was listing my blessings, my family, chocolate cashews, a glass of whole milk at night, like the things that I am so thankful for having. And then it just hit both of us at about the same time. As much as all those things fill our hearts with joy, at any moment, some of those things could be taken. I hate to even speak those words out loud, but they could be taken. And if I lost my joy in losing those things, it would not actually be joy, would it? I'm after a joy that cannot be taken. You may remember the psalmist says, Restore unto me the joy of my what? Salvation. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I think joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's actually one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. And that makes sense of how we can be called to do a thing that sometimes seems impossible to do. Rejoice. How do I just choose joy when I'm not feeling it? And I'll tell you, if I was the doctor giving you a prescription, I would say, savor your salvation that the secret and pathway to enduring joy is greater appreciation for what God has done for me in Christ Jesus, that I would savor that. Jonathan Edwards, I mentioned those things in our lives that can fill us with so much happiness and joy and yet can be taken. He said about those things, and these are some of the best words I've ever heard on joy, I want to end with them this morning. I want to pray over you. Let me hear this. He said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can truly be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of the best earthly friends are but shadows, and God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are streams, and God is the ocean. I pray that this week your heart would be turned to him and what he has done to save you. 
If you have not experienced the salvation and sweetness of Jesus Christ, I would love to baptize you in these waters behind me this morning. Come down after I pray over us. Let me do that now. God, would you fill us? Would you restore unto every person in this room the joy of their salvation? Would they know, God, that in your son, Jesus Christ, what they most deeply long for is on offer and that that is very good news. May we savor and dwell on that news this week for your glory and for our good. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.